Thank you, Jake Jr. Very uh, full scripture passage this morning. I'm sure you're very grateful that you got the small one. Um, again, welcome. My name is Matt, and uh, what we've been doing in this particular season around Redeemer during this kind of season of Eastertide is we've been trying to tease out some of the implications of the resurrection, that if Jesus really was raised from the dead, what does that mean for our lives? If, if He is indeed making all things new, what are some of these new things He is inviting us into that He's bringing us into? And we saw a couple of weeks ago that He, he brings us into this new creation. Ben spoke last week about how He, he gives us a new self, and then this morning we're going to see that He gives us a new command, a new command to love one another. And he says there in verse 35, by this, meaning by how you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is such a big deal that Jesus says how we love one another tells a story to the world. It, it bears witness to the fact that Jesus is real, how we love. Notice he doesn't say by what we post on Facebook. He doesn't say by, uh, by our Christian t-shirts, by our snarky bumper stickers, uh, by Christian policies and government, by winning lawsuits, by winning arguments. He says, no, it's by how you love. And so, if, if the Christian church's witness is riding on how well we love one another, it might be worth spending some time to talk about it. So, that's what I want to do, just looking at these two, past, these two verses from that little passage that Jake Jr. read. I want to look at three things. I want to look at the model of love, the target of love, and the power for love. Not the power of love, it's a great song, but the model, the target, and then where do we get the power to do it? So let's look at the model of love. Jesus says in verse uh, 34 that he's given us a new commandment. But if you think about it, the, com the call to love one another is, is not really new. If you go back into the Hebrew scriptures, if you look at your favorite book from the Old Testament, your favorite book in mine, the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 19.18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not like that's a new idea. So what is new about it? Well, what's new about it, you find out at the end of verse 34. He says, just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. He's holding himself up as the model, saying, here's what's new. Love each other in the way that I have loved you which raises the question, okay, how has Jesus loved his disciples? How has he loved us? He's cared for us. He's served us. He's protected us. But, but he has something more specific in mind. In fact, you can find out explicitly what he's thinking if you just jump ahead a couple of chapters. And I included it in the beginning of your bulletin. In John chapter 15, here's what he says. Verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I, has, as I have loved you. So he's in the same train of thought. He's in the same headspace. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. What Jesus has in mind is his willingness to lay down his life for his friends. He's talking about the cross, dying for people. This is the model by which we are now to love one another. That love is this selfless, costly sacrificial way of relating to one another, which you have to realize, this is crazy countercultural. What Jesus is calling us to do is, is so countercultural, it's so counterintuitive. Think about it. We live in a culture that loves to talk about love. 
We have endless love songs. I was just thinking about, even just think about the Beatles. Almost every song they wrote was about love. Here's just a, here's just a few. Love me do. All my lovin'. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love her. Hide your love away. All you need is love. And then it's not just the 60s. It's not just the Beatles. Think about T-Swift. You got love story. You are in love. Lover. Even Kanye has a love song. I love Kanye. It's a great song. But then you got endless, um, you got endless rom-coms. You have, you know, there's a love story threaded into almost every sitcom. You got Jim and Pam. You've got, uh, you know, Leslie and Ben. You've got articles about love and TED talks about love and podcasts and memes and just we're just we're obsessed with this idea of love. But when you step back and you think about how how do we understand the concept of love in our culture, it gets a little confusing. Because if you think about the way that we even use that language, I mean, think about when you get a new phone, you get a new, a new, brand new, shiny phone, it's the latest edition, you're like, oh, this phone is awesome, I love it, I love this phone. Then some time passes and the memory gets full, or you drop it and the screen cracks and it's slow, and you're like, I hate this phone. Just few years later, you went from loving it to hating it. And what you mean by that is you're saying, this, it's not working for me anymore. It's, it's slowing me down. It's not making my life, it's not, it's not convenient for me anymore. And you see this, even this language played out in how people date each other. You know, as, as, as couples start getting to know each other and they start grouping together, they, they, they you know, quickly enter into this like a infatuation phase where they've known each other's names for four days and they're already telling each other, I love you and... PDA all over the place and everybody's nauseous watching them and it's just this you know puppy love face but eventually somebody does something to hurt the feelings or to embarrass or to, to, to frustrate the other person and the, the person who is a you know the offended party shuts down and go radio silent it gets awkward it gets tense and then what was once really fun and exciting comes to this phase where we feel like we're fighting all the time and it's not ex it's not as exciting as it once was and you, at some point you just kind of end it and move on. And when you step back and you think about, okay, here's how we relate to love, what we basically mean is love is an amazing feeling that I get from this thing or from this person. And when this thing or this person stops providing me with that feeling, I guess I've fallen out of love. But here's the thing, if the cross of Jesus is the model for what love is, Love doesn't always feel good. Love, love is, is costly. It's, it's painful. It involves cutting into my schedule and my safety and my comfort and my bank account. It, it, it involves, it's demanding something from me. It's, it's you know, we, we think of love as like warm and fuzzy, but love is gritty. It's, it's, this is why the cross is the, is the model. It like involved blood and gasping for air. That's what it took for God to love me and for God to love you. It was not easy for God to love us. It involved pain. So here's the question. When you think about loving others, do you think it's going to come naturally? It's not. As you think about the people in your life that you want to love, the people that you want to serve, it, what is it costing you? Is it cutting into your comfort? Is it cutting into your patience?
as you seek to engage and care for people that are just kind of hard to be around. Love is this, it's this demand, it's this call for you to sacrifice, to give up things for the sake of caring for other people. That's what, that's the model. The model is the very, is the cross. So, okay, second question. Who are we supposed to love? Who does Jesus have in mind when he says, I want you to go do this? To who? Well, let's look at the target of love secondly. And it's pretty obvious. Jesus tells you three times in two verses, he wants us to love one another. Three times. So he says, I want you all to love one another. And in case you missed it, I want you all to love one another. And if that wasn't clear, let me say it again, love one another. Three times. Now, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his immediate followers, which is another way of saying he's, he's basically talking to the church. He's talking to us. And of course, you know, as you read the Bible, as you look through the gospel account, he's, he tells his disciples, of course, I want you to love people beyond your little circle as well. I want you to love your neighbor. I even want you to love your enemies. But in this particular instance, he is zeroing in and he's looking at, uh, at the church as people who claim to follow Jesus and says, I want you to love one another. And I think that's really important for us as a church to focus in on because I, I think it is maybe one of, the most hard, one of the most challenging things for Christians to love other Christians. You know, you see somebody who, you know, somebody who identifies as a Christian and they post something online that you just you know, cringe over, or you find out about what, what some Christians or some churches who they have endorsed or what they have endorsed politically, and you just are appalled by it or genuinely hurt by it, or you um, hear about another sex scandal from a celebrity pastor, another mass shooting where the person responsible was connected to a church. I mean, I, I, I've... I have talked to people before who genuinely love Jesus and yet do not want to be associated with the church. People who say, I, I love Jesus, but I, I do not want to be lumped in the same camp as those kind of people. And, you know, on I, I'm, I'm one hand, I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, can you, blame, can you blame them? And yet the question remains, how do we love one another and not ignore or overlook or cover up our obvious faults? It's, it's not an easy question to answer, and I want you to know it was not easy for Jesus' disciples either. It was not easy for the early, the early church was not this homogenous, everybody looked the same, everybody thought the same, everybody was on the same page. It was this wildly eclectic, diverse group of people that clashed in a lot of ways. Even if you think about uh, the 12 people that Jesus is speaking to, just those 12 dudes in that, in that group, you have clashing personalities. You have Peter, who Peter, if you know anything about Peter, he wore all of his emotions on his sleeves. He was just this impulsive, arrogant, just, he would, you know, speak first, think later. And in that same group of 12 people, uh, you have James and John, who Jesus very playfully nicknames the sons of thunder. And I, I'm not entirely positive, but I would think that the, one of the reasons why maybe Jesus nicknamed them this is because they have every bit of a loud, big personality as Peter. They are what, you, what the cool kids might call extra. 
Sorry about that. Um, they, um, you know, there's this one example in Luke chapter 9 where they're walking through the Samaria, this village, and they're getting rejected by people. They're, people just are not interested in who they are and this gospel that they're talking about. And so they go to Jesus and ask Jesus permission to rain down fire from heaven to incinerate the people. That's how they respond to conflict. We will just destroy you. You have those people, Peter, clashing personalities. But then you also think about it, you have clashing political perspectives within the 12 disciples. You have Matthew, who was a tax collector, which means he worked for and supported the Roman government. And right next to him, you have this dude named Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a political party that hated the Roman government. They wanted Israel to rebel against the Roman government and reclaim their own independence. And so right there in the same group of people, you have some people that are for big government and some people that want to overthrow the government. Right there in that same group of people, you have some people that, that are over here politically. You have some people that are over here politically. You have, you have some people that are funding the Roman police, and you have some people that are protesting the Roman police right there together. And then as the church grows and the, you know, the early church expands, it becomes multiracial, multicultural. You've got rich and poor. You've got men and women. You've got Jew and Gentile. You've got Africans and Romans all there together. My point being, the church has always been complex and therefore challenging and not necessarily easy to get along with. I mean, so much of the New Testament are letters written to local churches trying to help them to get along because there's so much fighting and fracturing and, and tribalism. And so what do we do? Well, I, I want to think about um, us in here for just a second, us in this room. You know, Jesus, um, he commands us to love one another. This is not, he doesn't say this is a new suggestion. He says this is a new command, and therefore it's going to involve work. It's going to involve time. It's going to involve hard conversations and patience with each other as we're straining to try to understand where each other is coming from. And it's going to involve repentance when we screw up and hurt each other's feelings. And it's going to involve forgiveness and grace. And so how do we, as a little church right here in Midtown, do this? How do we love one another? Because this room is, you know, we've got clashing personalities. We've got East Memphians and Midtowners. We've got homeschoolers and public schoolers and private schoolers, and we've got people over here politically and people over here politically, and we've got some people that are really cautious about COVID and some people who are really cavalier about COVID, and so how do we get along? I'm going to give you two practical thoughts. This is, uh, you know, this is not thus saith the Lord. I'm just trying to tease out what it might look like for us to love one another. Here's the first. Spend time together. Simple. Alan Jacobs wrote this amazing little book called How to Think. And in that book, he's trying to explain why there's so much vitriol online. And one of his ideas is that it's so easy to be cruel and rude online because you're distanced from people. You don't, sometimes you don't even know who these people are. And so if, you, if you're distanced from them, they lose their humanity. They just become a set of ideas that you disagree with, and therefore you feel justified in bashing. And he makes this point in this book that when people actually get together and have real face-to-face -face conversations, you, there, there forms a connection. You begin to kind of 
develop empathy for each other and you understand where the other person's com coming from and you understand that this is a person with their own story and their own pain and their own hurts and it, where they're coming from might start to make a little bit more sense. And so you develop connection. It's, just, <laughs> it's not rocket science. You only connect with people if you spend time with them. So spend time with each other. If this is a community that you really want to get involved with, I would encourage you to get involved in a community group. Ben's email address is on the back of the bulletin. Email him if you're not connected to a community group. He would love to put you in one and show up to one and commit to one. Uh, or maybe you're in here and you're, like, and you're looking around and you're like, I don't know who all these people are. Which, by the way, everyone in this room feels that way. There's no one in this room that's not looking around saying, I don't know who these people are. No one knows anybody anymore. So that involves talking to each other. Spending time with each other. Maybe that means after church, you know, when we're hanging out outside, introducing yourself to somebody new. That might cut into your social sensibilities. It might make you feel awkward. That's why we go back to the model. It's part of what it means to love one another is it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, I'm not going to get to lunch as quick. It's going to cut into my lunch plan. It's going to cut into my, you know, social comfort level. Spend time with one another. That's the first. Here's the second little application we're teasing out of this. Change your perspective. And what I mean by that is it, it's the, it is the natural default operating system of human beings when they walk into a space to ask the question, what's in it for me? How, this place exists to meet my needs. This is why when people are, you know, often Christians as they're going around town and they're church shopping, if they leave a place that they didn't really like, they didn't really connect with, the, the phrase is, well, I didn't really get anything out of it. It's about me. But what if you changed your perspective? And when you walked into a space, you didn't think, what, is, what, what does this place have for me? But you thought, how can I give? How can I expend myself for other people? Who's maybe sitting by themselves or who's alone that, that I can move towards and make them feel welcome? How can I make them feel more comfortable? How can I serve? How can I give? Change your perspective. It's a million different applications that we can make. Those are just two. Final question. How do we do this? How do you get the power to change your perspective, to give, to, to allow you know, love to be this driving principle in your life where you're, where you're, you're sacrificing, it's, it's cutting into you, in, into you? How do you get the power to do that? Nobody wants to do that. How do we do that? Well, the power for love, it's, it's very fascinating. If you look at, again at the end of verse 34, he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This was so interesting to me when I was looking at this um, recently that every scholar, every commentator that I looked at said that that little Greek word that we translate as just as, it has two different meanings. It can mean, it, it can mean two different things simultaneously. On the one hand, it can mean to compare two things. I want you to do this just as I'm doing it. You know, you look at a, you know, a TikTok dance video, it's like, do these dance moves just as that person is doing it. Just copy them. But it also means to be the cause of something. I want you to love somebody just as I have loved you, meaning from, from, the, from the overflow of my love for you. Picture like filling up a, a big pitcher of lemonade and going outside and filling up the ki little kids, you know, cups of lemonade. You're, you're, you're pouring out this overflow of what you have. So in other words, the love of Jesus is not just the pattern that we copy. It is the internal power 
that drives us. If you want to think about it like a, like a train, it's not just the train tracks that direct you where to go. It is the internal engine that's also propelling you forward, which raises the question, how does the love of Jesus drive you to love like Jesus? How does the love of Jesus drive you to love like him? Howard Stern amazing pivot. Howard Stern gave an interview with NPR in 2019. It's fascinating. You can read the whole script online. He's telling the story about how he became kind of this, you know, famous shock jock radio personality. And here's what he says. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. He says, there was a point in my career where we did research that one out of every four cars on the Long Island Expressway in the largest market in the United States, New York, were listening and tuned into me. And when I heard that, I was massively depressed that three out of those four cars were not listening to me. And he goes on to say, I didn't want to play the Beatles, I wanted to be the Beatles. So when you want everything and nothing satisfies you and you only want to be in a narcissistic kind of way, the center of the universe and the focus, I was clearly a starved person who would only believe that the focus needed to be on me. He says, I'm the starved person who needed all of this attention. And then he goes on in, later in the interview to theorize why that is. Why is he this desperate, starving person for attention? Here's what he says. It's fascinating. He says, I realize now my father was a radio engineer, and he looked at those broadcasters with such reverence. He was so kind and loving toward them and worshiped them. And I said, ah, so that's what you do. You get behind a microphone, and you get everyone listening, and then everyone loves you. Well, that's a sad way to live your life because nobody really genuinely loves you. They appreciate what you do, the entertainment you give them, but that's not the kind of love I was looking for. That's so insightful. I so appreciate his honesty. He's saying, I moved into the world from this desperate, needy, starving place because I was wanting people to love me. And I got one out of four people in New York to listen to me, and it wasn't enough. I was so hungry, so desperate for love that it wasn't enough. And here's what's crazy. Even if four out of four people in New York City were listening to him, it wouldn't have been enough either. Because human hearts are these, you know, bottomless pits. It's like the Grand Canyon, and you throw a bucket of water in the Grand Canyon, there's no way you're going to fill it up. It's getting some attention, some validation, it's just not enough. And all of us, if we don't have it, if we don't experience that level of love, then we move out into the world from a position of desperation, eager for anybody to communicate love for me. And so that's why we are workaholics. That's why we, this, this, you know, in some ways, the root behind addiction in many ways. There's, there's, we go out of the world looking for success, looking for attention, looking for validation, looking for somebody to communicate to us, you matter, I love you. And here's the thing. You can't give away what you don't have. You can't give away love unless you first have it to give. You can't give away something that you're desperate to receive. And so what's so amazing is here comes God in the person of Jesus. And he says that kind of love that your soul is craving, starving for, desperate for, I have for you. 
I love you, the validation, the need for attention, this, this need to, be, to know that you matter, that's how I feel about you. I love you. I cherish you. I delight in you, which is great. Those are fun words to say, but he goes a step further. He doesn't just say it. He proves it, and he demonstrates it. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus gave up his life for us on the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So while we turned our back on him, he turned towards us. We rejected him and just wanted to take and take and take, and he came and he gave and he gave and he gave. We wanted to grab power and money and stuff, and he came and he rang his life out to the very bottom for you. For you. When, when you know in your soul that you're a complete mess, and he still loves you, that's where you get the resources. I mean, because who in your life, who loves you like that? Who loves you that no matter how many times you have failed, no matter how, how many times you've hurt him, you've hurt your friends, you've hurt your family, you've hurt yourself, you've blown up your life over and over and over and over, and he says to you, my love for you is never running out. It's bottomless. It will never stop, never finish, never ending, aggressive, relentless love for you. When that gets in your guts, that's where you get the inner resources to now move out into the world, not from this desperate, needy, somebody love me, but from a position of now I can give the overflow of the love that I have. I can receive and absorb criticism, and it's painful, and I don't like it, but I can take it. I can fail and I can screw up and I know that I'll be okay. I, I can love other people and it can cut into my schedule, it can cut into my safety, it can cut into my bank account, it can cut into my patience. I, I can give because I have, because I know that I'm loved. But you can't give away what you don't have. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see this great love that you have for us? And I pray that this would not just be a cognitive category in our brain, a box that we check, but would it be something that trickles down into our very being, that everything about us now is, is animated by the knowledge of your love for us, your willingness to give of yourself for us. And I pray that that would so fill us that as we move into a world that demands so much of us, you would give us the, the inner resources to be, people that, to be people that love, to be people that walk in your ways and love others in the way that we have been loved. We pray all of this in the name of our good King who loves us. Amen.